0: Let us pray now for the reading and preaching of God's holy word. Send your spirit among us, O God, as we meditate on your love. Prepare our minds to hear your word. Move our hearts to embrace what we hear. And strengthen our will to follow your way. This we pray through Jesus Christ, our Savior and King. Amen. A reading from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 20. Verses 25 through 28, the Gospel of our Lord. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the Gospel of the Lord.
1: Thank you, Jenny. Ben Carpenter was taken for a ride. It was 3.30 p.m. on June 6th of 2007 when the 21-year-old man with muscular dystrophy uh, was driving his electric wheelchair down the sidewalk in Pawpaw, Michigan. And as he approached the street crossing at the corner of Red Arrow Highway and Hazen Street, a semi, a big 18-wheeler truck, pulled up right right by him at the stoplight. And Ben had the arrow, so he began to cross the street from north to south in his wheelchair, just a few feet in front of the semi, but when the light turned green, the semi didn't see Ben and his wheelchair in front, and so the semi just gunned it and pinned Ben and his wheelchair to the front of his truck. The wheelchair spun around. The handles got stuck in the grill. And as the semi began driving faster and faster, bystanders started shouting. People were waving at him. What? Look what's going on. Understand what's happening here. Uh, at one point, two police officers who were off duty saw what was happening. But at that point, the semi was traveling 50 miles per hour with Ben pinned to the front of the truck, totally oblivious to the effect that his choices were having on this young man, on his life and his future, whether he would even survive. And finally, after a number of minutes, the semi slowed down and pulled into a trucking center. And we have a picture of Ben Carpenter. Can we get that slide here? Pinned to the front, he was taken for a ride. Friends, This is what some of you experience every day in your marriage. (laughs) This is what some of you have experienced in your churches. This is what some of you experience every Monday when you head into the office. When someone with a lot of power and a lot of authority has very little consideration for the impact of their decisions on you. Some of you know what it's like to be taken for a ride by a leader who is clueless to the effect they're having on you. Thank you. That's good. Ben survived. Not everybody does. Parents have a lot of power over their children. Husbands have a lot of authority. Employers have authority. Leaders, pastors, denominational officials, government officials, and by contrast, so many others are weak and vulnerable. Power is not a bad thing. Authority, the right to exercise power, isn't a bad thing. God gives it for the sake of others. But, but how many of us have experienced the abuse of authority? Uh, the leadership we often see in church, and government, in places of employment, in our families, often it resembles being stuck in a wheelchair, stuck to the front of someone else's semi as they're going 50 miles per hour. Today is the Feast of Christ the King. We're talking about leadership today, about what it looks like to lead the way Jesus led, how it is that Jesus rules over us and influences us as our king. And we're going to talk about the impact that that gospel, that good news about Jesus dying for sinners, the impact it can actually have in your church, in your home, in your family, in your workplace. We're going to look at a fascinating passage from the book of Acts. We're in chapter 15 this morning. It's uh, fascinating because there's this debate in the early church um, among these early Jewish believers when non-Jews, Gentiles, start becoming Christians and they're baptized. Then the question is, do they then have to become Jews like everybody else? Do they have to be circumcised? Do they have to obey the law of Moses uh, found in Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy and all of those commands that were given to the Jewish people? And we're not actually going to talk about the decision that was made. That's, we're going to do that next week. This week, we're going to talk about the process that was used to come to the decision that we're going to talk about next week because it's fascinating. It is absolutely not the way people in this world make decisions, people with authority, people with expertise, people who know their stuff. So this is Acts chapter 15. We're just looking at the first six verses. You can read ahead or wait till next week to find out what happens, but we're just looking at the process. This is the Word of God. Acts 15, beginning in verse 1. Some men came down from Judea to Antioch. And they were teaching the brothers, that's the Christians, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. And so Paul and Barnabas were appointed along with some other believers ...to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and the elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. And this news made all the brothers, who were all Jews, all of them very glad. And when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. And then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised as required and obey the law of Moses. And the apostles and the elders met to consider this question. What do we see here about leadership? First thing which is glaring to me when I look at this is that gospel-driven leaders do not Pull rank. I mean, this is Paul. He is an apostle. Understand what that meant. He had seen the resurrected Christ and been appointed apostle to the Gentiles. He wrote 13 books of the New Testament. His writings we receive as the very words of God who superintended him. He had the authority. He had the position. He had the rank. And he was here in Antioch with this church. And there were people who were saying, oh, you have to be circumcised and become Jewish to be saved. And he had the rank and authority to say, no, shut up sit down. You're a heretic. You're going to hell until you repent. I am the apostle. Settled. Do you want to take it up with Jesus? He could do that. He had that authority. And he didn't do that. He instead sent a delegation to Jerusalem to go get somebody else's opinion on the matter. He could have pulled rank, but he didn't. Even Jesus said, the Son of Man didn't come. To be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for others. He's following in Jesus' footsteps. In Philippians 2, the same Paul, would would tell us to think like Jesus Christ. Christ Jesus who, though he was in form, God himself. He was the nature and essence of God. Yet he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped onto. But he emptied himself and became in the form of a servant. And even going to the point of death. How... Does this speak into leadership, into marriage, into the workplace, into parenting? When you understand that gospel leaders don't pull rank, they instead seek simply to serve. One parent tells the story of Bobby. Bobby, staring across the room at her, his arms folded in defiance. He had just smashed his sister's speckled white Hatchimal and there were pieces all over the ground. The inconsolable wailing coming out of his sister's lungs had already blown out one candle on her birthday cake. And so mom steps in to offer empathy to the sister while dad walks Bobby down the hallway to the woodshed to his bedroom and sits him down and he says, Bobby, you're always going to be my son, and I love you but what you just did was really cruel and heartless and really hurt your sister, I think you need to ask her forgiveness and then save up your allowance because you're going to have to buy her a new Hatchimal. And you know how this is going to go down. Some of you have been this. I've read books about this, but this, is for some of you, is your daily life. He's going to say no, and Dad's going to insist And Bobby's going to demand why. And dad's going to get angry and say, because I said so. And Bobby's defiance is going to escalate further. And then dad's going to pull rank and say, because I'm your father and I say so. And it certainly looks like that's the game plan here. Except dad gets down instead on Bobby's level. He looks him in the eye and he says, son, I'm so sorry you don't want to do this. But that's because we're sinners and we're selfish and we don't know how to love other people, and we don't want to, Bobby, you don't know what's wrong with you, but you're damaged just like the rest of us, and you need Jesus to change your heart. You need Jesus to forgive you. Jesus died so that he could break you from this selfishness that's growing inside of you. And, and Dad and Bobby talked about Jesus, and they talked about discipline, and they experienced some discipline. And There was certainly defiance. There were tears. But instead of pulling rank and saying, because I'm your father and making it a power play, He actually got down and brought the gospel to bear on the heart of his own son. You know, learn from the process here. Paul had the position. He could have settled the debate. He could have said, because I'm the apostle. But he stepped back from pulling rank. It wasn't about him and his position. give you another story. Deb was a lead researcher in a biochemical company, and she was the sort of boss's boss that everybody kisses up to. And once you know her, you want to get on her good side. But one afternoon after a meeting, Deb was passing through a lab, and she noticed a brand-new employee who was working on a project that that Deb understood intimately. And she could tell from a distance that this new guy didn't have a clue what he was doing. He was just approaching it all wrong. And she banked on the fact that he probably didn't yet know who she was. And she, she, she put on a white lab jacket, and she put on goggles, and she went up, to him and and knelt down below him and and asked him, hey, what what are you working on? You're new here, right? What's your name? Hey, Steve, uh, what are you working on? Tell me what you're doing here. And he explained it to her, and she said, you know, I've done this. I've been in the same position before, and I found it really frustrating, but then someone actually came and showed me a different way that really helped me out. Oh, Really? What what was that? Well, What they told me to do was, was this, and she explained it to him, and then it was like light bulbs going off. And he got it, and he understood. He was like, oh, yeah, I think that's going to work. You might be on to something. This is great. Now, he didn't feel talked down to. He didn't feel scolded. He didn't feel shamed. He had no clue that he was talking to the boss's boss's boss. And she didn't even tell him, you're doing it wrong. This is the way to do it. No, she got down below him and said, you know, I used to not know how to do this too. And someone else showed me. She was giving the credit to someone else, not even being the expert. see, that's leadership. That's real leadership. That's somebody who it's not about her power. She empowered this employee, and he didn't know who she was, and she wasn't going to tell him. See, that's like what Paul's doing here. He's not pulling rank. He had the position, but he didn't pull rank. He didn't just have the position. He had the expertise, and for some of us, this is even more infuriating. You know, like, Paul wasn't just an apostle. There were 12 of those, which apostle was he? He was not the apostle to the Jews or 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 the Jews the Indians or the Jews or the Jews or the Jews or the Jews. He was the other one. Which one was he? He was the apostle to the Gentiles. And what's going on? They're trying to figure out how to evangelize and convert Gentiles. And, you know, there's one person in the room who knows all about that. He is the global expert. Still after 2,000 years, he's our global expert on evangelizing Gentiles. He's the only apostle to the Gentiles. He's Paul. He had the expertise. He could have explained to them that Gentiles don't have to be circumcised. The Gentiles don't have to obey the law of Moses. That you're allowed to eat pork chops. That you're allowed to have cotton poly blends. You're allowed to do all sorts of things. You're even allowed to have buzz cuts because you're Gentiles and that's okay for you. But, But he had the expertise. It's like when you're at work, And you're working on a project, and you're in the room, and you know exactly what needs to happen to get this project back on track and moving, and and you're trying to explain it to everybody, and they're just not listening, they're not getting it, they're not buying it, and you just think, if you just recognize my expertise, we'd all be happy right now. It's why I hated group projects in grad school. Because or at least at seminary, because I was really trying to get into a good grad school. And by good grad school, I mean a grad school that would pay me money to go there. And, uh, and I'd be in groups with, with guys who just really want to like, be missionaries and do youth ministry and stuff like that. And they, they were happy with a C-plus or a B-minus. And I really needed not just an A, I needed a 100 because this was going to affect my ability to get into a good grad school, meaning one that would pay me money. And so, uh, you know, but it was difficult because in group projects, I just had to learn to be okay getting a B or an A-minus at the very, 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 very best uh, rather than actually running over all of my group mates. It was a hard thing for me because I felt like I had some expertise in some of these areas. And yet the gospel says you don't need to be the expert the gospel says you don't need to be the one with all the answers. The gospel says you don't need to be the one everybody follows. Jesus had all the answers for you. He has all the expertise, and he gives you his expertise. He clothes you with his righteousness. There's nothing you're going to do to embellish the resume that he has already given you. Uh, you know, the gospel frees you up from, from being able to pull rank, not just a, as a position of authority, but the position of expertise, Paul the Apostle to the Gentiles doesn't pull rank despite his expertise. Instead, he submitted the matter to others. Uh, Here we see the apostle submitting a doctrinal question about Gentile conversions to the broader church leadership in Jerusalem, the elders and the apostles. And that's something that requires a lot of emotional and spiritual maturity and intelligence. Uh, not very many leaders are willing to say, you know, I don't need to make this decision. Let's just see what other people think about it. You know, that doesn't come naturally to all of us. It certainly didn't come naturally to Paul, only supernaturally after much suffering. But the focus wasn't on his office. Leaders have to submit to process just like everyone else. Leaders have to give up control just like everyone else. That's true in your marriage. That's true with your children. That's true in your workplace. That's true in the church. There are times, yes, when leaders have to make really difficult and unpopular decisions, but my experience is that followers will follow a leader in an unpopular decision even if they're not sure they agree if that leader has been one who has never appealed to rank and has never been on a power trip but actually loves them and is able to take himself out of the equation enough to to be selfless in his thought process. You see, gospel-centered leaders don't pull rank. Um, Gospel-centered leadership submits to the process. Uh, It's really getting us into the second main point. What we see here is a gospel-driven leader does not pull rank. We also see gospel-driven leaders share the decision-making. That's what Paul is doing here by sending this delegation Jerusalem. He's not making the decision, at least not the big ones, by himself, and and this is typical in the Bible. Uh, Even in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy chapter 1, remember they were trying to figure out leaders for the various tribes of Israel, and Moses said to the, the Jews, why don't each of you tribes just choose your own leader, and I will then appoint him to that position. It's what we saw earlier in the book of Acts in chapter 6 when the believers were charged to to choose from among yourselves seven leaders who are filled with the Holy Spirit and filled with wisdom and they're going to be your deacons and they're going to lead you in acts of service. It's the people have a say in selecting their leaders. It's only when Timothy in the book of Acts was planting new churches that he appointed elders. Uh, The rest of the time they appear to be the church themselves having a role in that selection and there's usually not just one person in charge either in the Bible. Uh, it's something about leadership where it, it's seldom one guy who's the boss. Uh, the Israelites certainly wanted a king, and God told them, no, you don't. That's not the way you want to be ruled. In the New Testament, we see here uh, a body of leaders. Paul and Barnabas collectively are reporting back to the apostles and elders, and it's not just them, it's them and a group of people. And they're reporting to this body of elders and apostles combined, which... For an apostle, why would he, you you could see, oh, he'd report back to the other apostles, but, and the elders? Like, that's kind of a lower office from an apostle, you know, that's like, um, that's like the CEO reporting to the interns, you know, it's just kind of weird. But, but they'd already developed this, this group of leaders that would be there to lead the church when they were gone, because the apostles were a dying breed, they had witnessed the resurrected Jesus, and there were fewer and fewer of those. But, but always in the Bible, it's always collective leadership. Uh, uh, Paul instructs Timothy to appoint elders, plural, in each church. We see plural elders in each church in Acts 11 and Acts 14, here in Jerusalem in chapter 15, and then again in chapter 20. Uh, you know, and, and, and they seem to all be sort of at the same level. You know, words that later in church history became bishop, and priest, episkopos, and, and and presbyteros, overseer and elder in the New Testament. You know, they're used interchangeably in the New Testament. Paul, when he addresses the Ephesian elders, he calls them shepherds and he calls them overseers or or episkopoi and he calls them uh, 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 presbyters or elders because elder and bishop and shepherd and pastor were all used interchangeably. It's it's what uh, the Didache in the first century, that earliest. Extra biblical document about church government uh, says that each church is to elect for themselves bishops and deacons, multiple in each church, or elders and, and deacons who are worthy of the Lord. You see it in 1st Clement and the shepherd of, of, of Hermes. You know, the people had a role in selecting their leaders, and there was not usually just one person in charge. Paul mentions these elders as well as these apostles to which he submits this question of circumcision for Gentile converts. Um, Fascinating. 300 years later, uh, St. Jerome commented on how frustrated he was that in his day, bishops were starting to think of themselves as superior to elders when they had always biblically been the same thing. Uh, You know, Jerome's viewpoint already by the 4th, 5th century was becoming the minority report. And my point isn't that bishops are bad. There's pragmatic value. There was historical precedent. We don't follow that model here for reasons because what we see in the Bible is a shared leadership model. There's never a boss man who's boss over a church. And we see group decision-making. Notice, you know, they're, they're submitting this question to a group. Uh, it's something we see repeatedly in the first chapter of Acts when the apostles collectively jointly decided on a replacement apostle after Judas had died. Acts chapter 6, believers choosing their deacons. 2 Corinthians 8, the church is jointly appointing a missionary. Acts 11, the council of elders and apostles in Jerusalem decided collectively to send Barnabas and Paul to Antioch on a mission trip. This plurality of decision makers, whether it's a group of apostles or a group of believers or a group of elders or a group of churches, right? it's what we see in the New Testament so much. So why is that? Certainly there are pragmatic reasons. You get a group of leaders together to discuss something, you're going to have a whole lot more perspective, a whole lot more questions brought up. It's going to be better dealt with. You've got multiple spiritual gifts coming to bear, but there's something more going on here. They understood it, that leaders are all universally broken, damaged sinners who are always this close to falling if you're not careful. We're talking about the Apostle Paul here. Paul, who had arrested, jailed, and murdered Christians— before his conversion. Paul, who was a man who understood his capacity as a leader to be deceived, to be wrong, he knew he was capable of failing and failing badly. This is the Christian apostle who says in Romans 7 that the things he doesn't want to do are the things he does. And the things he does want to do, those are the things he doesn't do. This Paul, who calls himself the worst of sinners, you know, somebody probably believed him. And, uh, and probably with reason. He was a sinner like the rest of us, but loved by God and clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Could you imagine how tempting it would have been for Paul if Paul had just said, hey guys, you know, you sit tight in Antioch and I'll go talk to the elders and, and the apostles in Jerusalem and report back to you what they say. I mean, how tempting is that? You know, tempting to present your opponent in the worst possible light, to twist and take what they say slightly out of context to make them look worse, to, 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 to fudge, to hedge, to, to control the information. And they're, they're saying, Paul, we love you, but you're a sinner like us. We know you're an apostle. We're going to let you go report back to Jerusalem and come back with, but we're going to send a couple people with you just in case. You know, it's just being very realistic. They didn't want to put Paul in that place of temptation." These early followers of Jesus assume we're all weak. They know what's in the heart of a man. Even if you notice in the early church documents in the New Testament how whenever they're dealing with money, they're often transferring money to this group or that, collections for the poor during the Jerusalem famine. And it's always a group of people with, with the, the, the money, usually two or three, but sometimes more. It's always that they send the financial gift with Barnabas and Paul and Timothy and Luke. And you're like, okay, now why would they need Barnabas and Paul and Timothy and Luke to carry this money back? It's probably not huge bags of gold, you know. It's like, why would they need four people? Well, for security? No, then they'd take an armed guard. Why they need four is because you never know who's going to be tempted around a bag of money if no one else is looking. I mean, maybe that's not your sin that tempts you. Maybe your temptation is more sexual sin, or maybe your temptation is more what people think, or how you look, or whatever else it is. But, but you know, they might have been sitting there thinking, yeah, we want Luke to go, but you know, Luke, I mean, I know he lost everything when he came to Jesus. And sometimes he really looks at that life he lost longingly, and we don't want him with a bag of money on his own. You don't know what might happen. He might take a couple coins out. We better send Timothy and, and, and Paul and Barnabas along with him. I mean, you look at the heroes in the Bible. You've got Abraham, the father of the faithful, uh, the father of faith itself, who lied about his wife being his sister and led her toward an adulterous relationship, and then turned around and did it again. You've got Moses, the, you know, the the great leader of God's people, the Christ figure, the mediator between man and God in the Old Testament who snapped at God and was denied entrance into the promised land. You've got David, King David, a man after God's own heart, the Bible says. God says, and yet he was also an adulterer and a murderer who murdered a man to cover up his affair. You've got Peter, who uh, some would say he was the first pope. He was the first bishop of Rome. He was certainly the chief spokesperson of the apostles in the book of Acts, and he denied Christ not once, not twice, but three times, denying Christ in public, no doubt, before repenting about that. The only hero in the Bible is Jesus. The only hero in the Bible is God the Father, and God has son because the rest of us are weak and prone to fail and we need our our brothers to keep us from temptation and to hold us up and to go along with us and so there's always this plurality of decision makers nobody is ever the boss man in the church nobody ever gets to go alone with the money nobody gets to go alone to report or to report back everything is always a group because we're damaged and we need that accountability and that transparency And so we see a great leader here in Paul, the apostle appointed by Jesus as the the apostle to the Gentiles. And even though he was deeply aware of his own failings as a man, as a Christian, as an apostle, we see him able to lead in a revolutionary new way that does not pull rank on account of his office. He doesn't pull rank on account of his superior information and knowledge and experience. And he submits to group leadership even though he himself was an apostle. How can a leader, a gifted, strong leader like Paul do that? How can you do that in your marriage, with your children, in your workplace, in your church? Well, it's possible because there is a true leader Uh, Think back to how Paul ended up on this missionary journey in the first place. He was persecuting Christians on his way to Damascus. And Jesus met him on the road, knocked him off his horse, made him completely blind, said, I am Jesus and you're going to follow me, and you are going to be my apostle to the Gentiles, and you are going to suffer greatly in that leadership role. Why? Because it's a Christian leadership role, and the way Christian leaders lead is by suffering for the sake of the people that they're called to serve. Why? Because Jesus, the leader, is our model. Jesus is the one who suffered in order to lead us. I look at Jesus no figure has had a bigger impact on my life. No figure in history has changed my life more deeply than Jesus of Nazareth. And you know how he did it. He didn't do it by climbing up on his throne and issuing me commandments. Because he had, when that was happening, I was not listening. But the way he changed me was by getting down off his throne and climbing up onto a cross and absorbing the wrath of God on my sake, getting nailed to a cross. The way he influenced me was from below by washing my feet when I was dirty and dying for me when I was ungodly and uninterested in him or his kingdom. It's gospel leadership. It's from below. Uh, You know, we see repeatedly in the New Testament various ways of describing what God was doing on the cross. And The images are drawn from different areas of ancient life and life in antiquity. You have the image drawn from the courts of us as guilty parties needing forgiveness. And Jesus pays the price for our guilt on the cross and therefore forgives us. You see another image drawn from the marketplace where we are slaves in the slave market and we are up for sale And Jesus goes into the slave market, and on the cross, he pays the price to purchase your freedom so that you, ransomed by his blood, can go free. You see another image drawn from the ancient temple sacrifices, where we are dirty and ceremonially unclean and unworthy without honor, and Jesus then goes and dies as both Priest and sacrifice for our sake as a sin offering so that we then might be made clean and holy and acceptable to God. Drawn from the courts, drawn from the marketplace, drawn from the temple. All these images have one thing in common. What they all have in common is the theme of sacrifice. Of someone else substituting himself for us. Jesus, our substitute, who pays the price for our sins. You say, Greg, why can't God just forgive our sins? Well, it's because there is always a price where forgiveness is concerned. If somebody drives their SUV through your front fence, across your yard, through your shrubs, and through your beautiful double-pane glass window into your living room, you can go up to that person and you can demand that they pay every cent or you can go up to them and say, no worries, I forgive you. But if you do option two, does the window just go back? Does the front wall rebuild itself? Does the, the shrubs just suddenly pop back? No, somebody has to pay for that. And once you forgive them, you're going to have to pay the price of that forgiveness. If you forgive them, you're going to have to pay for the new window and the new wall. You're going to have to pay for the new sod and the new shrubs. You're going to have to pay to rebuild the fence. That's what Jesus is doing on the cross. He is paying the price for your sin. In the financial crisis of a decade ago. Uh, it was caused by a whole lot of corruption, a whole lot of mismanagement, and a lot of financial institutions over a lot of years. And, uh, and ultimately what happened is, you know, these institutions, I think Bank of America itself owed $17 billion. And, you know, the government ultimately stepped up and said, you know, we're just going to forgive you, you're too big to fail. We forgive you your $17 billion, you're fine, go on now. Now, who paid the $17 billion. <laughs> You did. Taxpayers did. Somebody always has to pay the cost. But if you can imagine humanity, this massive debt, billions and billions and billions, trillions of dollars in debt, humanity having this massive debt against God because of our sin, because of my sin, because I'm the biggest sinner in the room this morning— God, looking at that and taking on himself the biggest bailout in human history, saying, I am going to take all of that debt on myself. Jesus made the new CEO of an organization called Humanity Inc. And Jesus then paying all of that debt himself. That's what he's doing on the cross. He's eating the cost of my sin. He's eating the cost of our life of rebellion. It's the biggest debt forgiveness plan the world has ever known, and he did that, friends, because he loved us, because Jesus is a real leader, a real leader who sacrifices and dies for the sake of the people he desires to shepherd. You know, your, your culturally white, Anglo-American view of leadership uh, is of a, a strong white man who barks orders. He's calm, He's steady. He has no emotions. He stuffs his emotions. He's just a little bit angry all the time below the surface, but no one is going to take advantage of him. He tells it like it is. He gets things done. And friends, the Bible's vision of leadership is different. The Bible's picture of a leader is of a man nailed to a cross, absorbing all the wrath and anger of God, so that he could set his enemies free and win their heart and capture their longing and desire as one who is truly beautiful and worthy of following because he alone is the leader who loves you. Everyone lives for something. Whatever you live for is going to master you. Friends, be mastered by one who loves you, who loves you completely, who loves you more than he loves himself, who died in order to gain the one thing he wanted most, which is you body, and soul in all of your relationships and in all of your leadership, a God who dies for his enemies. That's leadership. That's the leadership that Paul experienced. That's the leadership that enabled him to learn from his family, learn from his Savior, learn from his brother Jesus, and so sacrifice and humble himself for the sake of all of us. Gary Burge is a professor at Wheaton College, and he shares a story, or shared a story told to him by a theology prof who once worked in Jerusalem. The professor was fluent in Arabic, and he had access to the Arab Christian community, and he shared this account. It was the late 1980s in Jerusalem's uh, famed Hadassah Hospital, and a young Israeli soldier lay dying of a new disease He had contracted the HIV virus as a result of his lifestyle, a lifestyle his family had not known of, and he was now in the last stages of that disease's terrible course. In the days before antiretroviral treatment, HIV was a death sentence. And it was widely believed at the time that you could get HIV, the virus that causes AIDS from casual contact with a victim's blood, saliva, or sweat, And this victim was in a hospital where there is a lot of all of those. The soldier's father had been a famous Jerusalem rabbi. Both he and the rest of the family disowned the young soldier. The young man was condemned to die alone in his shame. And the nursing staff in Hadassah Hospital, the nursing staff on his floor, knew his story. And they carefully avoided his room at all costs. Yes, there was a fear of catching his disease. Bodily fluids might be anywhere in a hospital, but these were medical professionals. They dealt with infectious diseases all the time. No, there was something more going on because this young man had a stigma from his shameful lifestyle, his terrible sin, the shameful disease that God had brought down on him, and his father, the chief rabbi, had abandoned him and forsaken, struck out his name. His entire family had rejected him. He was alone, rejected by man and God. He had a stigma, and so the staff gave him no treatment, not even palliative care. Everyone was simply waiting for this young man to die. The soldier happened to be part of a regiment that patrolled the occupied territory, the Palestinian West Bank. His unit was known for its ferocity, for its fighting skills, and at times for its cruel abuse of Palestinian villagers. The Palestinians living in occupation hated these troops more than any. They were merciless. They could be cruel. Their green berets always gave them away. And one evening in Harassah Hospital, the young soldier with AIDS went into cardiac arrest. All the usual alarms were blaring, lights flashing, sounds going off, but the nursing staff did not respond. No one approached the room where the Jewish soldier with HIV was having a heart attack. Even the doctors just looked the other way. Yet on that floor, another man was at work. He was a young Palestinian. He was a janitor, poorly paid, an Arab and a Christian. The janitor knew the soldier's story well. He knew the meaning of the emergency. His own village had been attacked by this soldier's unit. The rocks the villagers had thrown had been met with live Israeli gunfire by tanks and then by Israeli bulldozers that destroyed the people's houses and their livelihoods. And as this Palestinian Christian Arab janitor heard the alarm, he looked up one corridor and then he looked down another. He witnessed the neglect. Everybody was looking the other way. Everybody was pretending like it wasn't happening. He looked around for anyone who would help this enemy soldier. And everyone turned away. And as he walked toward the room and he peered at the young man dying inside, his heart was filled with compassion for this enemy soldier And so he dropped his broom and put his mop aside and he walked into the room. He looked around, he got up on the bed, he cupped his fists together and began administering CPR to the young Israeli AIDS victim. He tried to give him mouth-to-mouth, anything that might restore his life. He didn't know whether this meant that he might get the disease himself. He was driven by the compassion for a fellow sinner and the compassion for his enemy. It was a remarkable scene. Because while those who should have been stepping up stood on the sidelines, an Arab, a poor Palestinian, a lowly janitor, a victim of this soldier's unit's violence, risked his own job and his own safety, perhaps in his own mind, his very life, in order to try to save his enemy. Friends, that's leadership, and that is what Jesus did for you. He got up on the bed. He gave you mouth to mouth. He knew the disease you had and the disease that you had, friends, was a lot worse than a virus. The disease that you had would bring about eternal condemnation, the very wrath of God, eternal rejection, abandonment in the outer darkness. And Jesus got up on top of you and knowing full well that the disease would pass from you into himself, he resuscitated you at the cost of his own life, going to the cross, abandoned by the Father so that you, friends, will never, ever, ever face the judgment of God. If you have Jesus, you are sealed, signed, sealed, delivered on your way into his kingdom, and nothing can ever stop you because Jesus led you. He was your king, and a king dies for his people. That's leadership, friends. Let that get into your heart. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we give you thanks for giving us Jesus who knew from the very beginning what the cost would be. And yet he looked upon us in our sin, in our shame, in our failure, in our loss, and he had compassion. He had compassion on us. And so, Lord, we consecrate to you the elements on this table, this bread and this cup, Lord, that you would minister the gospel to us, that you would love us, that you would wash our feet and serve us, Lord, so that we might bow down and wash each other's feet that we might serve this great city with the love and the welcome of Jesus. In whose name we now pray, amen.